Would you take your Bible with me this morning and turn to uh, the Gospel of John? We're headed back to John's Gospel this morning. We started in September uh, in John's Gospel, and we spent maybe three months with some punctuation in there um, thinking about the first 18 verses in John's Gospel. The first 18 verses of John's Gospel are John's prologue. They give us a, a, a... a pretty clear understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? The first 18 verses of John's Gospel shows us that clearly. And it demonstrates to us why Jesus Christ came in the flesh. What he came to accomplish. We just celebrated Christmas. Christmas is the celebration of Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. Jesus Christ in the incarnation. And we see John's account looks very different than, than some of the other gospel writers' accounts, especially the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three gospels, well, Matthew and Luke in particular, give us a birth narrative, how Jesus was born into the, into the world. But John's focus is a little bit different. He takes us all the way to eternity past and shows us that Jesus is eternal. That he has no beginning, despite the the fact that there was a time where Jesus took on flesh and his birth had a fixed moment in time, Jesus Christ is eternal. He has never not existed. And so the purpose of those first 18 verses is to introduce us to this eternal Jesus Christ. Jesus is the main character of John's gospel, and we learn that he is eternal, that he's the divine word of God who took on flesh. If we were to boil down the prologue, if we were to just look at these first 18 verses and say, here's a couple takeaways, the first would simply be that Jesus is God. We need to walk away from John's, the first 18 verses of this gospel uh, with the, the understanding that John wants us to have, which is that Jesus is God. That theme is going to come up over and over again as we walk through the the gospel. And then we also need to see that Jesus came to give those who believe in him the right to become God's children through the new birth that comes from God through him. Let me say that again. Both Jesus is God and Jesus came to give those who believe in him the right to become children of God through the new birth that comes or from God through Jesus. And so these concepts stand at the heart of John's gospel. They stand at the heart of John's gospel and we continually come up as we work our way through uh, the story as it unfolds. But this morning, we're done with the prologue and now we're moving into the narrative section. We're moving into the story, the, the meat of the, the gospel itself. So we're going to look at verses 19 through 28 this morning. Let me read these for us. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. 
Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So we can see clearly, now we're into the narrative. Uh, This text reintroduces us to a character we've already met, uh, and that is John the Baptist. If you go back to verses 6 through 8 in the prologue, we learn about John the Baptist for the first time. John the Gospel writer writes about John the Baptist, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So John came to bear witness about Jesus. And a handful of men sent by the Pharisees to question John about who he is. This is where the story picks up. The question that they ask, though, is a question that I think we ask ourselves pretty often. The question that these men come and ask John, the first question they ask is, who are you? Who are you? Again, this is a thing that we think about a lot, especially in our society. And in fact, one of the words that we use to describe the quest to understanding better who we are or answering the question, who are you, we use a word called authenticity. This appears to be the main message in many Disney movies. Queen Elsa is letting it go uh, and, and, and moving into isolation in order to no longer hide her self-defining icy powers. Or Aladdin wishing that he could impress Princess Jasmine, but the genie tells him in Bumblebee form to be yourself. Uh, philosopher Charles Taylor describes the last 200 years, uh, this period that we're still living in, as the age of authenticity. In this time frame, we live uh, and we seek to be rid of external forces that might shape us, desiring to only be who we are inside. Taylor says it like this. He says, the age of authenticity is an understanding of life where Each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us by outside, by society, or the previous generation or religious or political authority. If you want to boil that down, if that's wordy because he's a philosopher, but if you want to boil that down, what Taylor is saying is what Mulan is saying in, in the movie, the animated one, where she sings, when will my reflection show who I am inside? As she gazes into this mirror, desiring to be free of a society who's trying to squeeze her into a preset particular role. Christians are no different. We're not immune to this concept. We're doing this often as well. The conversation typically becomes one that centers on the idea of how God has created the individual and how that person can be his or her best self. But the Bible isn't interested in communicating to us how we can be our best selves. Rather, we are told that we should pursue how God tells us to live and spend our time and energy there. 
as a society, we collectively spend a ton of time seeking out our authentic self. The Bible, again, is clear. We should be seeking out God's purposes for our lives and not our own. This is not an internal quest of self-discovery, but a lifelong pursuit of obedience to the commands of Christ. We're not seeking to earn our salvation through our obedience, but rather we are working out our salvation, realizing that we are saved unto obedience, not saved by it. And so then the, the great part of this is that when we submit ourselves fully to God's purposes for our lives, human flourishing comes about. Human flourishing comes about. Instead of looking internally, we look externally. And when we look externally, we find the purpose for our lives and the purpose for all of life. So in this passage, the men sent by the Pharisees questioned on the Baptist. And that's the first question they ask. Who are you? And John's response, John the Baptist's response, or his responses to all of the questions they ask, are not evidence of internal self-discovery. He didn't have a better answer than you or I have to any of these questions that are posed. Rather, John demonstrated a recognition of God's purpose for his life. And the reality of the whole thing is that when we boil it down, John the Baptist was a one-trick pony. He knew God's purpose for him, and he lived like nothing else mattered. And so in this passage, we see two things that are, are two things clearly here, and they're kind of the inverse of each other, but we're going to explore them. We kind of have these negative responses, and then we have the positive response given to us in verse 23. So in this passage, we see John the Baptist do two things. First, he gives an accurate account of himself. And secondly, he points away from himself and he points to Jesus Christ. He points away from himself and toward Jesus. So consider that first one. John the Baptist gives an account of himself. This is an accurate account. We're told right away that the Jews sent priests and Levites to Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? They heard about John the Baptist. He caused quite a ruckus. A lot of people were, were wondering who he was. And so they, the Pharisees, sent these, Jew, or these priests and Levites uh, to him to ask who he is. And the, the answer to that first question is maybe a little bit strange, but John the Baptist knew the underlying thrust of their question. They said, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. He says it very clearly. He says, I am not the Christ. It has the feeling, John is saying, well, if you're asking me if I'm the Messiah, I'm not. I mean, there's some groundswell here. I'm, there's some momentum that's picking up around my ministry. But if you're asking if I'm the Christ, I'm not. I am not the Messiah. So he's not the Messiah. So then they go down the list of importance. They say, well, are you Elijah? This is a logical question because Malachi 4.5, which reads, Behold, I will send you Elijah, 
the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so these men were thinking, well, the, the awesome, the great day of the Lord upon us. They're like, if he's Elijah, then we're there. But he said, no, I'm, I'm not. He's not the Messiah. He's not Elijah. Well, we know that in Deuteronomy 18, a great prophet is described by Moses. We will speak for God to the people. Deuteronomy 18.15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. There's like, well, maybe John is this one. Maybe John is this great prophet. But John the Baptist just says no. Are you the prophet? He answered no. So now what? Now now what do these men do? He's denied that he's the Messiah. He's denied that he is the Elijah. And he's denied that he's the great prophet. So what comes, what comes next? Well, these guys don't know where to go next. And so it, it exhausts the list of people who they think that he could be. And so they decide to tell him that they have to give an account to the Pharisees that sent them. Right? They sort of like a kid running into the living room uh, and approaching mom and saying, Mom, what's for dinner? Dad's asking. They're appealing to a different authority here. They're saying, hey, John, we know you're busy. We're busy too. We're just asking for a friend. We need a quick answer. What do you say about yourself? And then in verse 23, John gives an accurate account of himself. He says, I'm fulfilling scripture. In particular, Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so John is laying the groundwork. John the Baptist himself is laying the groundwork for Jesus. He's making it known that the Christ is coming. And back in the prologue, we, came, we found out again in verses 6 through 8 that John the Baptist came to bear witness about the light. He was not the light, but Jesus Christ is the light. And the light is God's plan of redemption revealed. Jesus makes God's plan of redemption revealed because he is the plan of redemption. The light is Jesus Christ. John doesn't launch into... A bunch of personal details here. And he's like, who are you? He's like, well, you know what? I really like to eat honey. Sometimes I eat locusts. I make my clothes out of camel hair. You should try it. He doesn't say, my parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, largely they raised me well. They've made me who I am today. He doesn't say any of those things. That's like an athlete interview, right? He doesn't say any of that stuff, though. He goes straight into what God has set him apart to do. To be a voice crying in the wilderness, bearing witness about the revelation of redemption, getting everyone ready for the coming Messiah. We, we should take note of John's example here, John the Baptist's example, because the most important thing about you and the most important thing about me is what God thinks of us and what he requires of us. Let me say that again. The most important thing about you and the most important thing about me is what God says about us and what he requires of us. Not what we think about ourselves or what we hope to become or what we want to do. 
Oftentimes, those things are different. When posed with the question, what do you say about yourself? John the Baptist's response was rather what God said about him. And so that leads us then into the second point. John the Baptist points away from himself and he points toward Jesus. This is, he's just fulfilling his calling. He's fulfilling his purpose. He's fulfilling what God put him on the earth to do. He just turns it around. They're asking him about him and he says, don't think about me. I'm just the one who's coming to do this thing that's meant to point to someone else. Look at verse 25. They have a specific question for him now because they want to know about authority. They ask him, why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? He's not any of those people. So what is he doing baptizing? We learn in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel that John the Baptist's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And so he was baptizing men and women. It was an external act that represented turning away from sin and moving towards God. So they posed this question to him. By what authority, essentially? By what authority are you baptizing? And his, his response is a little strange. He just says, I baptize with water. Of course he baptizes with water. The, the word baptism literally means to immerse in water. That's what the word means. And so he says that, but what he is indicating by saying that is that he's not the one that gives the baptism meaning. All that he does and all that he says isn't designed or given meaning by himself, but by someone who is greater than him who is coming. He gives an answer to the question, then why are you baptizing? He gives an answer to the question that leads us to believe that he, what, he believe, what he is doing is necessary, but is an inferior to the one who will come after him. It's inferior to the coming Christ and what he will accomplish. John answered them. He said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. When John baptized, his baptism was a shadow. It was a picture of what Jesus was coming to do. Paul tells us in the book of Romans that baptism is a symbol. It's a sign of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the fact that we, as God's people in Christ, will participate in that death, burial, and resurrection. When there is baptism, one goes under the water, like into the grave, and comes back up, raised to walk in newness of life. That is what baptism is. But, when someone baptizes, it appeals to a greater authority. I don't have the ability to say to someone, I can bring you out of the grave. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Only Jesus Christ can offer new life. And so, when baptism occurs, it is pointing to something greater than the actual event itself. John the Baptist could not exalt himself because he saw clearly 
that one greater than he was coming. And if that was the case, it would make no sense for him to focus on himself. This is just simple logic. He's just applying simple logic. And he is acting in humility. Humility isn't thinking poorly of yourself. There's a nice little quote that I'm sure that some of you have heard. It's like, uh, humility isn't thinking of yourself less, but thinking, or thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Now that's quippy and nice, but it's not necessarily the truth. The reality of it is that humility isn't thinking poorly of yourself. Rather, humility is thinking of yourself properly. The reality is, though, when you think of yourself properly, you will likely think about yourself less because there is one who is greater. There is one who is far greater, exceedingly greater, more than you can even figure out. And when it's clearly revealed that there are those who are greater than you, it would be stupid to draw attention to yourself. It would be like a man who played high school football talking about winning practice player of the year at the end of the season banquet while he stands on the sideline of an NFL game where Patrick Mahomes has just thrown five touchdowns. Like, hey, I won practice player of the year when I was a sophomore in high school. Isn't that great? Well, well, a professional athlete completes an incredible feat that has only been done a handful of times in the history of the sport. Against the, the premier competition. Humility says, I know what God has said about me and I know what I am designed to point to and that is one who is greater than me. There's a lot of nearsightedness that we're, we're encouraged to participate in in our society. John the Baptist runs counter to that. He runs counter to it. Society says, make it all about you. And John says, it's not about you. John the Baptist pointed away from himself and he pointed toward Jesus. We're going to move to a conclusion and maybe think about some application for this text in itself. Um, earlier, I called John the Baptist a one-trick pony, and that, that's typically not a, not a positive thing, right? I'd rather someone call me a renaissance man than a one-trick pony, although the latter is probably more true than the former. But the passage, in this passage, in John's gospel, John the Baptist is exactly a one-trick pony. John the Baptist wasn't given a role to draw attention to himself, but again, to point away from himself. And that's what he does. We aren't meant to, this isn't here, verses 19 through 28 in chapter 1 of John's gospel, aren't here for us to say, wow, look at how amazing John the Baptist is. It's designed to say, wow, look at how amazing Jesus Christ is. And similarly, although we might not be fulfilling Scripture exactly the way that John the Baptist was, uh, we are called to con- be continually pointing to Jesus. This is the role of the Christian. The role of the Christian, the job description of the Christian is to be continually pointing to Jesus Christ. But somewhere we got this mixed up because somewhere we just merged with the world 
oftentimes as Christians, we just merge with the world and engage in this conversation about authentic self. Because whether you think highly of yourself or whether you think poorly of yourself, in both instances, you're just thinking about yourself. And what do we tend to talk about? That which we talk about is typically that which we think about the most. John shows us that we should be continually speaking about the excellencies of Jesus Christ, and that means that's where our minds need to be. That's where our hearts need to be regularly. The one who is greater than even John the Baptist was. It doesn't sound novel, but I think it actually is to most of us. Because we're fed so often with this message of individualism, many Christians go along through their whole week and never talk about the greatness of Jesus Christ. Many Christians go through their whole week and think only about themselves, positively or negatively, far more than they consider Jesus Christ. Many Christians go through their week thinking that God exists to make them happy, and when they're not happy, they just grow embittered. When things are hard, rather than seeing that God emptied heaven of its greatest treasure, God emptied heaven, the person of Jesus Christ, in order to give him the name that is above every other name. The role of the Christian is to be Christ's ambassador here on earth. You're a pretty bad ambassador if you just talk about yourself and not the one who sent you. John's job was to communicate that Jesus was coming, that he was revealing God's plan of redemption. And our job is to declare that the light has come. God's plan of redemption has been revealed and it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. The light has shone in the darkness. Our job is to proclaim Christ and him crucified. The perfect lamb of God who came to die to remove our sin from us the only one to ever go into the grave and to take his life back up again, never to die again. And so the source of humility is our recognition of God's purposes for us, that we're designed and set apart to declare those excellencies. And then to take delight in living according to those purposes. Not to see them begrudgingly or a duty or a whatever but to see that God has given you everything that you need to make that a reality in your day-to-day. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He's given you His Word. Those two things are plenty, are enough to demonstrate to the world around us that Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure that heaven has to offer and that if we trust Him, we will spend eternity with God. This is not fitting God into your plans, but submitting to him. It's not becoming the best in your line of work. It's not even making more money. It's not finding happiness in all of life's circumstances. Rather, it's recognizing that when you trusted Jesus Christ, when you turned from your sin and you believed in his name and experienced new birth in him, when that happened, you were set apart for a purpose. And this is probably largely the practical application of this text about John the Baptist. 1 Peter 2.9 says it clearly. You see two sections in this. I'm going to go up on the screen. 
two sections in this. The first is who you are. And the second is the people who have that identity. What, is, what does it look like? What do they do? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's who you are. That you may proclaim, this is what you do, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's a simple formula. If you are this, then you do this. In Jesus Christ, you're set apart by God for a purpose. If you are in Christ, this becomes your life, mission, and goal. If you are in Christ, you become a one-trick pony. And that one thing that you're designated to do is what Peter says, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Wherever you find yourself, whether it's in Bethany across the Jordan in first century Palestine, or in Jamestown, North Dakota in the 21st century in North America, you've been set apart by Jesus Christ, by the incarnate word of God, by God himself who took on flesh. You've been set apart by him specifically to proclaim his excellencies who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's it. You need to make life more difficult than it is. The reality of all of this is that we oftentimes can't think of it that simply. Part of that is external influences. Part of it is just our internal stuff. But for us, we need to realize that a society is continually telling us that we are an individual and that we need to find out who we are exclusively. And that that quest is ongoing for us. But the reality is God, who is, God has told us who we are. And when we know who we are, we know what we do. The search is over. Christ is the source of all life. Christ has given you life. And Christ is your life. May we grow in humility as we lean heavily into our purpose in Christ and make his excellencies known as a church. Let's pray.